0: Your host, Andrew
1: Donaldson. This is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, this is going to be a little touchy, but we're going to work through it because this man is so smart. He's going to explain it. So even I understand, talk a little First Amendment today, uh, <laughs> that's something we talk about frequently on our show. Adam Steinbaugh from FIRE is with us. Uh, sir, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate you joining us today. Happy to be here. Uh, let's start big picture before we get into the specifics of this case, because here's something we talk about on our show a lot. Things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. We say things online. We say things in the media, things become buzzwords. But when you go to do legislation, when you go to do a lawsuit, when you're talking about the law, you have to write these things down in black and white. So with that in mind, sir, what is the legal definition of woke? Because we're going to, Right laws about it. You think we would have a common definition of it? Do we? No. Uh,
0: woke is a uh, a term that escapes definition. Uh, it means different things to different people, uh, and its definition can almost change with the tone of your voice. Uh, so if you say, "Yeah, I'm woke," uh, maybe that is uh, <laughs> you have a specific definition of that. But if someone says, "You're woke," uh, they probably have a very different meaning of what woke is.
1: But that's and I'm doing that a little teasingly, but that's kind of the crux of the problem when you legislate or try to do law with something like this is you can't just say something like a buzzword on social media. You have to write it down and you got to write it down in black and white. So when you get to something like the Stop Woke Act and they're using that as an acronym, we'll get into that as well. This this is not just a spouting off on lines. Once you write it in black and white. It has to go up for judicial review. It has to match up to the constitution. There's layers of why when you put something in black and white that it matters, that's the piece of this argument. I think a lot of people just kind of skip over. It's like, you can't just say you don't like something. You not only write legislation about it legally, you have to define it, right? You have to define it and you have to do it in
0: such a way that people can read it and understand what is prohibited and what is not. So That is especially important with speech because if you have terms that uh, maybe are nuanced or vague uh, or just incomprehensible, uh, people will look at the law and say, you know, it's more rational for me to not say anything than to say something that uh, is going to risk consequences, whether for me or my colleagues or my institution. And that is critical here where you have a law that uh, lists a number of uh, viewpoints that you are not allowed to endorse uh, and if you do endorse them or you or a uh, court or your institution or uh, a panel of lawmakers uh, thinks that you endorse these viewpoints your institution could lose tens of millions of, do- of dollars in funding so that that puts a big old thumb on the scales in terms of uh, preventing people from uh, being courageous enough to Uh, articulate concepts or discuss concepts uh, in higher education. And that is the last place where you want to make people timid uh, of debating ideas.
1: Here's another place where the terminology comes in. We talk about things like academic freedom. Um, That's kind of a vague term. People kind of generally know that. But where does that become problematic? Because we understand academic freedom of, oh, I'm going to say something and you're going to disagree and we're going to hash it out in a classroom setting. I think that's what most people have in mind. If you had a legal definition of that, though, it's a lot more vague what people can and can't do. And since let's just be honest here, a lot of these colleges are state institutions and then you have private institutions. That's where freedom of speech and the law on freedom of speech starts to get a lot more complicated. Right. Well, it's.
0: Uh, there is no, you know, there. there's a case in the 11th circuit that says that there's no independent right to academic freedom. So, you know, if you look at the, the First Amendment, there is uh, nothing in there that explicitly says academic freedom. But that comes from tradition, and it comes from uh, the way that we conceptualize our universities and colleges, which is that we want these to be places where people learn from competing ideas and from being uninhibited to discuss those ideas. Uh, so, Uh, whether or not you label it academic freedom, uh, or you identify the right uh, via the First Amendment, uh, you know, it is uh, important to protect. And at public universities and colleges, you know, because they are state institutions, the First Amendment applies to uh, the way that they regulate student and faculty speech. uh, And Uh, At private institutions, the First Amendment doesn't apply, but most of those institutions or most educational institutions promise academic freedom or freedom of speech to their students and faculty because who would want to go to a college that doesn't promise that?
1: So let's talk about this law specifically. There's two parts to this. There's the political part and then there's the legislative law part of it. Start with the legislative part of it the accusation against it, and we're going to post to link directly to the legislation, please read it for yourself. Like we always say on our program, read this thing for yourself. The accusation is there's a lot of vague language and that it's not specific and that the things it is specific on are things that legally are going to be problematic. Is that a good reader's digest version of the problems here?
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, it is, uh, a law that, you know, reading it, you know, I, I'm a First Amendment lawyer. Uh, I, my organization has uh, defended faculty on both the right and the left for uh, a very long time. And that is my role, is to be able to tell people what they can and can't say in the classroom and be able to defend them when they uh, are approaching the line of what is uh, prohibited or permissible. Uh, I take a look at this law, and I can't, I can't give people a good prediction of what it does prohibit and what it protects.
1: Yeah. Adam Steinbaugh joining us from fire. When you decided to make this into a lawsuit, um, there's another terminology thing. We always think about it. And I was like, well, I'm going to sue somebody. Well, it doesn't really work that way. You have to have standing, you have to have cause and you have to have, you know, a reason to do it. Walk us through the general, walk us through the general public here. Your standing, why you think you have a case here and what you're hoping to accomplish with the lawsuit.
0: Well, uh, we have a case because when you have uh, lawmakers and uh, the governor uh, team up and pass a statute, and this is, you know, one of the the main legislative goals that they had they at had a, uh, you know, multiple press conferences and press releases, and you know, really heralded this law. So they're very serious about this law. Uh, and uh, when you have that dynamic, and when you have a law that uh, affects speech. Uh, and that purports to regulate speech, that can have a chilling effect. And uh, if you are a faculty member, uh, you know, as here, a faculty member who teaches history, who teaches about uh, uh, issues of race and history, uh, and you have to put together a syllabus or you are marching into class to, uh, you know, debate these uh, things or discuss these things with students or lecture on these subjects, If you look at the law and you can't figure out whether or not your speech is prohibited uh, or protected by the First Amendment, uh, you are going to rationally uh, refrain from speaking or lecturing or even getting close to these subjects. Uh, So when you have an objective chill like we do here, uh, it is not just someone who uh, is coming in and Uh, is just kind of theorizing and spitballing that maybe the law applies. Um, You know, uh, there's a good argument that the law applies here. Uh, And uh, for that, you can go to a court and you can say, look, uh, I can come before the court, even though I haven't been prosecuted or uh, suspended or terminated or otherwise punished under the law, I can come to the court before that happens in order to get clarification about what the law does protect or what it does prohibit and whether or not it's constitutional because we wanna protect the ability of people to be able to speak without being punished for it. So uh, normally when you have a violation of constitutional rights, you have to wait for the enforcement of the law against you. But the first amendment is different in that we want people to to be able to come to a court uh, and to get clarification about that so that everyone can speak.
1: Yeah. Now, that's the legal side of this. There's a political and a public side to these things, obviously, because, you know, let's be honest, you had to write a press release about why you're doing a lawsuit. It's just part of the business, right? When you're discussing that piece of it, before we even get into the particulars of it, what is it about these types of things? When you have a politically charged thing, you mentioned it. You're a First Amendment lawyer. You defend people on the right and the left and whatever else. Why does the first amendment have to be a double edged sword that goes both ways that we, it it has to be something that also offends you, not just that it also gives you a right to speak out publicly, just walk people through why it's so important not to just go after it's like, well, I want to protect what is meaningful to me because that may not be the same for somebody else. And that gets to the heart of what a right is, doesn't
0: it? Yeah. It's the first amendment is, uh, uh, or it's supposed to be a viewpoint and content neutral right. So uh, the limitations that you impose on speech are limitations that are going, you know, if, if those limitations are permissible, if those are limitations are constitutionally viable, they're going to be applied to uh, your enemies as well as your allies. So uh, if deep offense to a particular idea uh, or particular speech is sufficient to remove speech from the protection of the first amendment, That's a broad range of power, and it's going to be abused by people who hold power because the First Amendment is, uh, at its core, a counter-majoritarian right. It is uh, the defense for people who uh, are on the losing side of popularity. Uh, So it is what protects unpopular speech. And that is not, you know, some speech is going to be popular in some parts of the country uh, and unpopular in others. Uh, And if a state can take a list of ideas that they uh, have determined are uh, extremely offensive uh, and you know, just plumb wrong, and they say, if you endorse these ideas, that is de facto discrimination, that's a tool that you could see a, a blue state legislature picking up on the other end uh, and saying, if you criticize these ideas or if you, you know, endorse criticism of these ideas, that is discrimination. And now what you say will uh, if you're a professor or a student uh, in a given state, uh, whether or not what you say is uh, discriminatory will depend on which state you're in. And that's not how the First Amendment should work.
1: Now, Adam Steinbaum, joined us from FIRE, we're talking about the uh, Stop WOKE Act. That WOKE there is an acronym down in Florida. We're going to continue to talk about this. We're going to get into a couple of the points he points out specifically in this bill. There's already been some legal things going on with it. We'll discuss that and some more about the First Amendment and some nomenclature that you see all over your social media. We're going to ask him about it, see whether it holds up to snuff or not. Adam Steinbaum continues to join us on Her Tell right after this. Save big
0: on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.
1: Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell, talking some First Amendment with our friend Adam Steinbaugh. He's from FIRE, a wonderful organization. If you're not following you need to. They might make you mad from time to time, as he said, because they defend everybody. They're all about the First Amendment and freedom. Uh, let's talk about something specific in this bill, and you brought it up as part of the lawsuit. Uh, there's vague language in here, but there's also some really specific language that is problematic Um, when you dig down into it, you pointed out that there's prohibits instructions on eight specific concepts, race, color, national origin, sex that run counter to the government officials notion of, and in air quotes here, freedom, how much of this is a nomenclature problem and how much of this is a constitutionalism? Because again, here we go. We got terminology like, you know, freedom, race, color. These are things that are all over every Supreme court case. We read, why are they problematic in this bill when they are in this specific sequence for this specific reason?
0: Uh, it's because it's regulating speech, and it's saying that you know these are the concepts, or these are the ideas, or these are the conclusions that you are not allowed to endorse. Uh, and under the First Amendment, there is no such thing as a false idea. Uh, you know, it gets it gets a little bit trickier when it comes to the hard sciences because people can uh, you know come to uh, more objective definitions uh, in the hard sciences. But when you're talking about the you know, so-called soft sciences or the social sciences, uh, or Uh, Matters of uh, race uh, and um, just the the social makeup of our country; these are charged and difficult issues, uh, and those you can only win out, uh, or you can only resolve or try to resolve uh, through debate. Uh, It is not something that uh, a legislature can dictate by fiat, as you know. Here's the winner in the marketplace of ideas. Um, So. That is not a power that a legislature should have, uh, and it is important that we uh, defend that or contest that at every turn.
1: Now, your lawsuit is not the only lawsuit on this topic. There's other legal action going. In fact, there's already been part of the provisions blocked by a judge. But your lawsuit is very specific. You are narrowing it down to the higher education portion of this. You're also not going into the race and gender stuff why did you limit it to higher education and you already somewhat touched on the topic of this but what is it about the opinion of higher education faculties this has really been the front side of um first amendment speech because we're hearing about all this stuff you know academic freedom in the classroom we see all the viral videos of people arguing with professors and protesters in classrooms and outside speakers. this is something that's really in the forefront of a lot of the cultural edge of our politics right now Why did you narrow it in this lawsuit to focus specifically on the higher education?
0: Well, you know, fire has been in the higher education uh, freedom business for uh, about a quarter century now. Uh, So a little bit of it is just that that is what we are used to defending. Uh, But I think more importantly is that there is a distinction between higher education and K through 12. K through 12, obviously the people who uh, are sitting at the desk in a K-12 classroom uh, are generally not adults. Uh, they are generally not there by choice. Uh, they are legally compelled to be there. And the function of K-12 through has a greater emphasis on communicating community values and instilling community values to uh, students. So that involves uh, a greater leeway of uh, curricular choices or or gives greater leeway to the government uh, to define what those curricular choices are uh, and for the community to, to define its own values. If you contest that or contrast that with higher education, these are students who are by and large adults. Uh, you can hand them a rifle and send them uh, overseas to serve our country uh, and uh, they can uh, sign up for uh, very expensive um, loans in order to go to college, and, you know, they are capable of making their own decisions. Uh, they can vote. They are fully, uh, you know, full participants in our society, uh, and they should not be shielded from ideas simply because they are offensive. So, uh, aside from, you know, who is in the classroom, the purpose of higher education uh, involves different functions than K-12. through So, you go to college in order to encounter different ideas, and then to contrast those and discuss them and figure out where you stand on those ideas. That's uh, you know, while there there are some gray areas uh, in K through twelve, you can imagine a high school senior is probably going to be a little bit more rebellious and maybe uh, looking to uh, ideas that they might find subversive or um, uh, anyway, they they. Uh, the, the purpose of higher education is to encounter ideas that are different, whereas K-12 through 12, uh, is to uh, be sort of on the receiving end of the ideas that society wants to impart. Uh, and that doesn't mean you have to agree with them. Uh, I think that uh, the lesson from Tinker v. Des Moines, uh, which you may recall is the case in which uh, students wore black armbands in class to protest against the Vietnam War, uh, the lesson from that is that Uh, students can dissent from whatever the majoritarian view is, uh, even if they are in a high school or middle school. Um, But the information they receive uh, is going to be different than it is in higher ed. So uh, higher ed and K-12 are just fundamentally different. And it's important to protect the uh, open marketplace of ideas in higher education. And uh, that is particularly critical, where you have lawmakers or state legislature trying to dictate what will be orthodox and what is not
1: yeah but you raise an excellent point something that doesn't get discussed here either is when you're dealing with secondary education as opposed to higher education you've got an additional layer there because they're not adults so you have parents so what is the law you know we have this debate we've had it with the guns and medical care and everything you know are you magically an adult at age 18 should your first amendment rights change when you magically become an adult and does your parents speak for you before that seems like something down the road that's really going to get hashed out when we discuss these. there's again your lawsuits focusing on higher ed but there's going to be other lawsuits about the high school edge of this that's something that's not that's not going to really get solved anytime soon it's going to remain contentious of how much speech can a parent guard from the school system over their child right
0: i think so uh, but i i want to distinguish you know make a a draw a line between what a K-12 institution imparts on kids in their class uh, as opposed to uh, what students choose to believe uh, or to say or to read. Uh, So it's one thing to say, okay, in the following, you know, in the the following periods of your classes today, you're going to learn the following subjects and this is how they're going to be taught. It's another thing to say, these are the types of books you were allowed to check out from the library and exercising your own choice because students uh, you know, especially as they get older, they're autonomous. They have their own rights. Uh, and, uh, you know, parents have uh, certainly important uh, rights in determining uh, or guiding the education of their students. Uh, but that doesn't mean that students, uh, that the First Amendment rights uh, for uh, you know a young person uh, turn on or off on the day they turn 18.
1: Okay, you're a First Amendment lawyer for the purposes of this conversation. We're not going to hold that against you, but we are going to ask you some questions (laughs) about it because you may have noticed that online, especially on the interwebs and on things like Twitter and Facebook, there's a lot of bad legal advice regarding the First Amendment floating around. So we're going to ask you a couple questions about a few of them. Uh, Let's start with one of everybody's favorites that's just gotten flogged to death in the wrong direction, uh, yelling fire in a crowded theater. Uh, Walk us through that one a little bit because everybody seems to want to spin that one out whenever there's a debate online. I don't think they really realize what they're actually saying and where that trope comes from. Just deal with that one real quick for us.
0: Well, it was a, a metaphor and it's, it's catchy. It's clever. It, it captures a concept uh, for a lot of people, which is that, you know, some speech is unprotected, but that's a truism. Uh, and I think that uh, what people tend to deploy it as, is as, as a you know, sort of a, an escape hatch to say, you know, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, so therefore, whatever speech I dislike is also unprotected. And that's not how the First Amendment works, and it is not helpful, uh, because uh, that truism doesn't give you an argument. It doesn't explain why the speech that you think is unprotected or should be unprotected should be unprotected. Uh, So uh, if someone is saying, well, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, like, that's that's true, but it doesn't tell you anything. Uh, And uh, it is almost always being deployed as a means of trying to argue that there should be less free speech. And it's almost always wrong.
1: It's funny you phrase it that way, because one of the things talking about the lawsuit previously that was mentioned in the press release, you was like, you can't censor yourself to free speech. That seems like such a simple line. And yet you could usually do this for a lot of government regulation, frankly, not just you can't self censor free speech to more free speech. It's never going to work that way, is it?
0: No, uh, I think that uh, government leave, or the First Amendment leaves choices about what to say and how to say it to the speaker, uh, and a lot of you know what is contested about the First Amendment or or what the First Amendment serves is about leaving the decision or leaving decisions uh, about what speech is appropriate to the listener and to the speaker. Uh, so, uh, if you are sitting down at Thanksgiving dinner uh, and uh, uh, you disagree with your relatives about whatever the latest political poop law is uh, you might self-censor in order to have a good discussion about you know family goings-ons uh, at dinner uh, so uh, you know it uh, it's it's sort of a truism that uh, you're not going to self uh, censor your way to more free speech uh, but it's also true, I think, that, you know, the the government is not going to be able to uh, credibly decide what speech is appropriate and what speech is not appropriate in order to try to come up with a more free speech environment.
1: Uh, uh, here's a good one. We've heard this one a bunch over the years. Speech cannot cause harm by itself. Well, that's kind of one of those that, well, it depends on the definition of is there, but speech cannot cause harm by itself. That's one we keep hearing over and over again.
0: Uh, I think it depends on what you mean by harm. Uh, speech is powerful. It can hurt you. It can really make people mad. Uh, and we use freedom of speech as a means to uh, avoid violence. It is a way for society to resolve problems without just resorting to violence. Um, it's you know it's we talk through problems, uh, and uh, that means that uh, some speech is going to hurt. It is going to be. It is going to cause some form of harm, but it is unlikely that the type of harm, because harm is a sort of a subjective uh, and vague word. um, We don't want to limit speech just because it causes harm because that harm might not be tangible. It might not be something that we can objectively identify. And if you can't objectively identify tangible harm uh, and you try to regulate speech on that basis, That gives uh, government uh, and the authorities a lot of leeway to punish speech, which they will inevitably abuse.
1: So you're saying sticks and stones may break my bones, but names can never hurt me is not sound legal advice when it comes to the First Amendment.
0: Uh, I generally don't get my legal advice from anything that rhymes.
1: That's a good rule of thumb to have. (laughs) Um, Continuing to talk to Adam Steinbach, our friend. Here's one that folks get in a little bit of a twist. Um, Again, this one depends because I've I've actually said this one myself sometimes. So uh, the best remedy for disfavored speech is more speech or the other, you know, if you put it in the vernacular like we normal people talk, the best remedy for bad speech is more good speech. How's that one land with you in the First Amendment, do you think?
0: I like it, but that doesn't mean that more speech is always the remedy. It's just the remedy that the First Amendment prefers to censorship. So. Uh, If you encounter, you know, someone standing on a street corner who is trying to explain to you that the moon landing was faked, you debating them is probably not going to be the best remedy to that. You walking away might be the best remedy to that. Uh, So uh, that is the solution to free speech uh, or to offensive speech is something that the First Amendment leaves to the person, you know, encountering it. Uh, They can answer back. They can give a full-throated response or they could walk away. Uh, But what they can't do is censor.
1: Yeah, and that one leads us to our final one that I've got lined up for you. Censorship, everybody thinks online, social media restrictions are a form of censorship. Does the First Amendment trump that little box everybody clicked and didn't read all the information about terms of service? Or are their free speech rights really being trampled when they get a timeout on Twitter?
0: Well, I think there's free speech is a cultural value. The First Amendment refers to the freedom of speech. uh, And there's the First Amendment as a legal principle. Ah, uh, the First Amendment generally protects uh, the content content decisions by Twitter and its users. So, uh, if you go and block someone on Twitter, uh, you're probably inhibiting their speech. You're definitely preventing them from talking to you and talking to the other people that you talk to, uh, and you know that is a limitation on their uh, you know broader freedom of speech. But it has nothing to do with the First Amendment because the First Amendment uh, only limits government actors, and Twitter is not a government actor. Uh, so uh, if Twitter, uh, decides to promote particular speech or to remove particular speech, uh, that may be an illiberal decision. That may be a bad decision, uh, but it is also a decision that is protected by the first amendment because the first amendment defers that decision to people, not the government.
1: Yeah. Good stuff. Adam Steinbaum joining us. Uh, speaking of censoring and editing, Uh, We were looking at your Twitter feed, my friend. And, you know, friends Uh hold friends accountable. On (laughs) September the 1st, you tweeted, and I'm quoting, the edit button is a good idea, and I, (laughs) lowercase I, will edit this tweet if it turns out to be a bad idea. Adam Steinbaugh, defend your tweet.
0: Uh, Can we edit this later? (laughs) I will not defend anything. You know, there's some speech I will defend, but I cannot defend anything I say. That is just over the line.
1: I'm actually, see, this is actually a good teachable point, though, because ever since they started on Twitter, I've been on Twitter about four or five years now. Everybody always talks about the edit button, and it's like, I don't know that I want an edit button because I can either delete the whole thing or I can just fix it or I can just leave it. I usually just leave it because it's become part of the thing. As everybody knows, I can't spell and I can't pronounce things right. I just kind of leave it. You know, where do you fall on something like that? Should people mis- have a right to fix their mistakes? It's kind of a silly thing when it comes to Twitter, but there, there is a free speech concept buried in there of like, do you have a right to fix your own mistake?
0: Uh, I don't know if I'd frame it as a right. Uh, I think it is useful. I like the idea of an edit button because I think it allows people to, uh, you know, people get things wrong. Uh, and, you know, there are going to be some scoundrels out there who, Ah, uh, we'll just never correct a mistake on Twitter. but some people, you know, uh, once you get a lot of traffic going to a tweet uh, and and you think you've made a mistake, you might want to alert everyone else to say, like, hey, I was wrong. you know I'm fessing up here's what I was wrong about. That might do a lot of good to uh, protect against uh, you know misinformation or people's mistakes. Uh, so, um, I like the idea as long as it is very transparent that there has been an edit, because I think uh, it's important to ward against uh, people abusing that and essentially fooling people, which I will absolutely abuse. Uh, But uh, I think that as long as it's transparent and you can see when something has been edited and how it has been edited, I think that's helpful.
1: Yeah. Um, just full disclosure here. We self-censor because you also had a spammers joke in there that we let go. So we weren't trying to be too harsh with you. Adam Steinball, uh, joining us from FIRE. Appreciate your time on this. That's a lighter side of a very heavy topic, but we need to do that to get through the days we live in. Where can folks follow you and follow the work at FIRE and keep up with this lawsuit as it goes forward until we see you again on Tell Again, my friend?
0: Uh, well, you can check out our website, thefire.org, T-H-E-F-I-R-E, dot org. Um, or, uh, and you could also follow us on Twitter. Uh, our Twitter handle is the fire org. Uh, and I would not recommend following me on Twitter because I will abuse that. Yeah.
1: The fire is an excellent organization. Uh, kind of what the ACLU used to be when they still had their faculties about them. They defend everybody. They defend free speech, uh, like it, don't like it, good, bad, indifferent, great organization. And very much appreciate your time and expertise today, sir. Really looking forward to having you back again. And we'll talk soon. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Thank you.